All right, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on another beautiful evening in Tucson, Arizona, where it actually is not freezing. Um, and we thank you for coming tonight. We know that you have other talks you could have attended this evening, and uh, we're glad that you decided to spend this evening with us. Uh, tell your friends who missed tonight that, of course, the podcast will be available online, and we welcome those of you listening to the podcast on the World Wide Web, either streaming at www.as.arizona.edu or on iTunes U at the University of Arizona page. Um, at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, the 21-inch Raymond E. White Telescope will be open and available for public viewing. It's the big white building with the white dome on top. Feel free to uh, go up the two flight of stairs and look through the telescope if you'd like. And if indeed there are any students for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment at the end of tonight's lecture. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our very special guest for this evening. He is the seventh director of Stewart Observatory. Uh, he took office in May of uh, 2012, so he has now been on the job for a little over a year and a half. Uh, Professor Buell Januzzi received his bachelor's degree in astronomy and physics from Havid. Um, he also, besides doing physics and astronomy, was a musician and played in many of the instrumental groups there at Harvard. Uh, he then came here. I remember when he arrived, because I had been here two years. He came here in 1984 and in our graduate program. And I believe it was 1990 that you received your PhD in astronomy from the University of Arizona. He then went to the Institute for Advanced Study, which is in Princeton. You may have heard that name before. Of course, that's where Einstein uh, ended his career. And uh, Buell was a, a postdoctoral Hubble Fellow there at the Institute for Advanced Study. Then he returned to Tucson after five years and uh, spent most of his time across the street at the National Observatory, NOAO. And for a time, he was also director of Kitt Peak National Observatory. And then a year and a half ago, he crossed the street. So I thought it was great if you get a chance to meet our new director and find out what's going on at Stewart Observatory. So without further uh, ado, here is Professor Januzzi. Thank you, Tom. It's, it's a great pleasure to, to be with you tonight. Um, the last time I spoke to the public lecture series, I was director of Kitt Peak, and we were uh, heading into celebrating the 50th anniversary of the National Observatory. And astronomy has a long history in the state of Arizona. And the University of Arizona has benefited tremendously from that and has been a major part of it. I thought I'd start off with a little bit of what got me into to astronomy. And those of you that actually were reading this, I can come back to this at the end of the talk. I started off in being interested in science um, when I was very young, but I didn't really think that I wanted to do science as a career until I had a, a very entertaining eighth grade science teacher. And so if any of you are teachers, I'm sure your students are thanking you in the future, even if they're not thanking you now. And my science teacher, Joe Bell, had the class go out and mark off, this is in Tucson, but I was recreating my eighth grade science uh, first week assignment. You had to mark off a square meter and make a list of everything you saw in it. 
and he made us sit out there for the whole class period. And in about five or six seconds, I made that list, and I didn't really understand why we spent the whole class period staring at the same piece of ground. The next day, he took every student's list and read through it to the whole class. And some students would notice, oh, glass only covers half the ground. There was a grasshopper and then it left. Or there was a grasshopper chasing something else, or they thought it was. And I realized, oh, other people were seeing things I wasn't noticing. And so he had us go out the next day and do it again. And I tried to do better. I tried to say, okay, there are five ants, red, but one left. Yeah. This was my first introduction to observational surveying. And I spent a lot of my astronomical career doing surveys like this one. This is a small, tiny patch of the sky that we imaged with the Mayall 4-meter telescope down to 26th magnitude, which coincidentally is the depth that the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which I'll talk about in a little bit, is going to cover the whole sky. But the survey that I did 10 years ago covers an area of the sky that if you hold up your hand, it's just a small patch of the sky. But at the time, it was the largest area done to that depth. So now, instead of counting whether there's a grasshopper or not, I'm looking for how many galaxies there are, of what type and what environment. And we're using light for all of these observations, but we're not limited just to optical light. Um, we also use infrared. But we're using generally light, for the most part, that's emitted intrinsically by the object. So here you have a, a bird in an infrared image, and this is emission that it's giving off, light that it's giving off, not reflected light, like this optical photograph of a similar bird. Here's just another uh, picture of a cold-blooded lizard giving off less light than the boy that he's sitting on. And in radio waves, you can observe the cold gas around distant galaxies. And the reason I'm emphasizing that we observe at, across the whole electromagnetic spectrum from X-rays uh, all the way into the radio is that Stewart Observatory in the University of Arizona is a unique department in that we actually are incredibly diverse in the areas that we try to study. And so when I talk to you a little bit today about the things we're going to be doing in the next 20 or 30 years, I'm being very selective. I'm leaving out 90% of the things that we're going to do. And I'm focusing on just some of the bigger projects that we have in store, and most of them are related to ground-based optical telescopes. But I wanted you to, to realize that we have to use every tool that we can find to really learn not only where the stars are, but where the gas from which the stars formed is distributed, and many other things. And one way to think about it is if you were going to do a survey of parts of the Earth to find out what you found, if you did a one square meter cube in Tucson, Arizona, you might land on a dry school ground. If you don't into the ocean, in one day, you're going to find that rich a diversity of life. It's quite remarkable. So if you're going to survey the Earth and make a fair sample of what you see, you're going to want to survey a large area, and you're going to want to monitor it for a fair amount of time, because the grasshoppers might come in and out of your survey area. And you're ultimately going to want to have a model of how the laws of nature are influencing what you're seeing. Now, this is a model from a little over 10 years ago of how dark matter and the force of gravity pulling on that dark matter 
pulls everything together and forms the structures that we see in the universe. And I'm showing this particular simulation because it is one from about 10 years ago, and later I'm going to be showing you one made here at the University of Arizona uh, of a similar volume. And I think you'll notice the improvement that computing technology and bright people uh, have been able to bring about. But this, this structure in the dark matter is where the baryons, the things we're all made of, get pulled along with the dark matter. And this forms a lot of the structure that we see. And this is what I spent a lot of my time trying to understand through the combination of observations at all different wavelengths and in collaboration with theorists who are producing models like this. And it's the way that a lot of the astrophysics that we're going to do at University of Arizona in the next 40 or 50 years is going to be done. Creating unique, incredibly accurate data sets that are going to be beaten against the most sophisticated models that our colleagues in the department can generate informing the development of new observations, and it's a wonderful feedback loop. And it's, it depends on the best technology, both in the hardware, whether it's on space or on the ground, and the computers. But most critically, it depends on attracting the best people, men and women, students and faculty, to come together and work together on the problems. Now, back to surveys. I mentioned if you only do a small survey, you might be misled. Now here's an example of a blown up part of that simulation that I just showed you with little squares and rectangles marking what parts of, this, of the simulation would be covered by various well-known imaging surveys that have been done over the last 15 years. And what I'm sure you've heard of is the Hubble Deep Field or the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. And if you randomly placed either of those survey fields on this part of the, the universe, you could be horribly misled about what structures might be typical. So you need to try and do as big a survey as you possibly can. So astronomers are greedy. We want to go as faint as we can possibly go. We want to cover as much of the sky as we can possibly cover. We want to spread the light out in a spectrum at the highest resolution we possibly can. So here's an example of high spatial resolution. Here's high spectral resolution. We want to do x-ray gas mapping and know where the dark matter is and where the baryons so that we can prove that dark matter exists. We want to have very high spatial resolution imaging like this from space to see the gravitational lensing. So we want to go deeper, fainter, sharper, wider. We want it all. That costs money. And so now I'm going to do a little interlude to how astronomy has been supported over the centuries that we've been making research quality observations, which started when Galileo started using a telescope. The biggest telescope that is being built has amazingly always been about the same fraction of whatever country or, or emperor is funding its GDP. So in today's dollars, it's about a billion dollars for the U.S. So Herschel, when he was building the then largest 50-inch telescope, had to get a king to fund it. The 200-inch was funded by a combination of philanthropic uh, donors, and it was around 972 million in today's dollars as a fraction of GDP to build the 200-inch. In the 50s and 60s, something remarkable happened. The federal government started investing in science, partially for fear after Sputnik, but also for a lot of other uh, less panicked reasons. 
and it led to both the NSF and NASA being created. And that's a whole other talk on directly how those agencies have influenced not only astronomy but, but science. But it made possible not only the space missions, which I'm sure you're aware of, but also the national facilities at Kitt Peak, Saratololo, Arecibo, and others, VLA, others. But the NSF also funded uh, universities. And states like Arizona, California, and Texas also supported astronomy. And for the University of Arizona, it has been absolutely essential that the state has actually provided money, which we've then leveraged into additional investment uh, into astronomy. It's also been possible, if you want to raise a billion dollars to build the premier facilities in the world, you need to partner. It's very hard for any one institution or any one uh, uh, group of uh, one department to raise that kind of money. And past examples include our own facilities like the LBT, but also every project that we're involved in in the future. So past and present at the University of Arizona. These are just some examples of the projects that we are currently involved in. And I'll come back to, to a few of these now. But I want to make sure you all understand that astronomy is not just a basic science. It's also an industry. Because we need revenue and we need money, we, we need to give back to society, not only sharing what we do, the science results that we, we find, but also what I call applied astronomy, whether it's helping Intel image their CCDs uh, up in Phoenix, which I'll get to, or helping Lockheed Martin uh, understand how to protect satellites. And in the state of Arizona, there's over 1.2 billion of infrastructure invested in the state to date. And there are over 3,000 jobs directly tied to the observatories in the state. And here's where the professional observatories and some of the well-known amateur astronomy um, observatories are located in the state. U.S. Naval Observatory, Lowell, the recently commissioned Discovery Channel Telescope is the newest telescope in the state. Mount Graham, Mount Lemmon, Kitt Peak, Smithsonian. All of the telescopes that you see here, including the amateurs, were drawn by the geographic ge uh, advantage that we have in Arizona. Our mountaintops, our clear skies, and thanks to a public that's willing to support uh, outdoor lighting ordinances, still dark skies. So University of Arizona specifically, it's a nice feedback loop. We have been producing great science, attracts great people. We have four members in our department uh, in the National Academy. That's one-third of the entire number of active members of the Academy at the University of Arizona. Um, they help develop the technology and techniques. They help innovate, which attracts, which not only produces great science, but attracts more great people. And it all started when Ellicott, Andrew Ellicott Douglas um, who originally was up at Lowell, and, and you can learn the history of how he came here. If you missed Tom's excellent talk on the history of Stewart Observatory, it's on the podcast, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip that. But philanthropy got us started. There was a bequest of $60,000 from Lavinia Stewart in honor of her husband. That led to our first research telescope. We also got help from the NSF. 
this is the All-American Telescope that uh, Todd, uh, that uh, Tom talks about in his talk. Uh, and it's the, the same dome that you're going to observe with tonight, although the telescope is different. And Tom first showed me um, this quote, and it's my favorite quote from, from Douglas. Uh, it's during his dedication of the, the new Great American Telescope. He says, I want this Stewart Observatory to live, and in living it must grow, and in growing it must produce results. Its use for classes is fine, its use for the public is fine, but it will not live without scientific results. That means we must have scientific men, and he should have said women, to keep it busy. From time to time, further equipment should be added in order to enlarge human knowledge, and suitable publications must present to the world the knowledge acquired here. And it's a key part of our mission, not only to discover, but to share what we do and inspire others to do the same. And astronomy's had a big role at the University of Arizona. This is just the most well-known, is, is he created a whole field during reconology. There's a whole wonderful new building. The joke used to be the best two things at the football stadium were the mirror lab and the tree ring laboratory. Now that the tree ring laboratory has moved, it's going to have to be the football team too. So they, they, can, they can try to win the national championship now. So Douglas got us started. In my mind, the, the next person that really um, moved us into a totally new regime was Aidan Meinel. Um, he had a remarkable career. He was involved in founding not only the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, but, but Kitt Peak National Observatory as well. He also was responsible for helping to develop our whole satellite reconnaissance network. And he helped found and develop the College of Optical Sciences. But what's important for this talk is he's also the person that, that uh, in trying to help Arizona keep up with the desire to build bigger and bigger telescopes in order to see fainter, see more clearly, he knew that there were six mirrors, actually eight mirrors available that could, from, that from a discontinued satellite program that could be used to form a telescope and combine the light that would have a collecting area that was more competitive than anything we had at the time. And a wonderful side benefit was that the images from this telescope turned out to be sharper and clearer than comparable telescopes at the same time. And this was because the mirrors from which uh, he made the telescope were thinner and they'd been made to be launched into space so they were lightweight. They were coming into thermal equilibrium more quickly than the conventional mirrors of the time. So if you've ever looked along a road in the desert and you see the turbulence and the density fluctuations causing the light to be distorted as the light passes through that turbulent air, telescopes on the ground, if they're not at the same temperature as the ambient air, will do the same thing. They're basically heating the air and distorting their own image. So this telescope was doing better than the average telescope of the day and making superb images. And this got Roger Angel curious. How far could you push this idea? Make lightweight but rigid mirrors to make bigger telescopes. And you probably, being the hardcore people that are coming to this talk, you probably know this story well, so I won't repeat it. But one aspect I think that gets missed sometimes is that my, the person I, I'm succeeding, Peter Stripmatter, who managed to do this job for 37 years, and there's no way I'll be doing that. Um, he, uh, he deserves an awful lot of the credit, along with Roger, for developing the Mirror Lab, because you need somebody that can go and secure the resources and help make sure 
that the visionary ideas that Roger was having for the for the Mirror Lab um, could be realized. And Peter is still actively involved in the Mirror Lab right now. People could be asking me if he's retired, but he's not retired. He just stepped down as director. So Aiden, Roger, and Peter took very simple, elegant ideas and then brilliantly executed them to produce the world's biggest telescopes. And they're, they're responsible for the present. And one of the telescopes, and I want you to note there are two of them here, uh, two of the telescopes that were enabled by the Mirror Lab technology are the Magellan telescopes. This is an example of a partnership with other institutions. It's the way we build new facilities these days. It's also home of the telescope that's produced the highest spatial resolution image ever taken. I think, I hope most of you, how many were here at Jared Mail's talk two weeks ago? Good, okay. So then you're familiar with these adaptive secondaries. These are very thin um, mirrors that can be adjusted in their shape. Uh, this is a slide that I borrowed from Jared. I'll just go right to the, and this is Jared. He's a, one of our graduates. He's still here as a, as a Sagan Fellow. There are only four Sagan Fellows a year, so this is quite, quite an accomplishment on his part. Here's what adaptive optics does in the most simplest sense. It allows you to go from a blurred out image to being able to see objects you would not have been able to spatially resolve otherwise. And here's another example. And it also brings objects that are otherwise too faint, but are, are intrinsically point sources up above your threshold for detection. So they give you details that you couldn't see before, and it makes things easier to see that you couldn't see before. So adaptive optics is an example of bright people like Jared and Larry Close and Phil Hintz innovating to create technology that has never been around before to produce images that have never been made before. And you can make discoveries just from that. And, and in their very first observing run, in which they also made the you know, images twice as sharp as Hubble, and the reason they're twice as sharp is they're observing at the same wavelengths, optical light, they're taking out the distortion of the atmosphere, and yet they're a six and a half meter telescope at Magellan instead of a 2.4 meter telescope like Hubble. So here's a, a slide I borrowed from Laird Close to try and communicate just how amazingly fine the details are that this telescope can see. Who wants, if, unless you saw this slide at Jared's talk, who wants to guess how fine a detail you could see in Phoenix from Tucson if you were observing with this telescope? I'll give you a hint, it's something some of you might still have in your pocket if you haven't gone to using credit cards all the time. You could resolve a dime, okay? The giant Magellan Telescope, which I'm gonna be talking about in a minute, will do four times better than that. Okay, truly remarkable. What does this mean for astronomy? Well, for astronomy it means that, you know, this isn't Saturn, this is a star that has a disk around it. So this is what Hubble's able to do. This is what we can do from the ground. One of the advantages about being from the ground is you can observe it more. Hubble time's very, very hard to get. Um, and we can do it at other wavelengths that Hubble can't even observe, at 3.8. And if you're a grad student at the University of Arizona, you can use it to discover a planet. And 
uh, Vanessa Bailey and Megan Ryder and their faculty collaborators here, during the first observing run with this new Magellan AO system, discovered a planet. And this is a case where the planet's far enough away from the star that it wasn't the spatial resolution that helped. It was the ability that, because that planet is still a point source, something that was faint and was missed in previous images, including this one taken with Hubble, was believable and clearly real in their data. And they've already published a nice paper about it. It's a very unusual planet. So the Large Binocular Telescope, using the same mirror technology that uh, made the six and a half meter mirrors, these are two 8.4 meter mirrors. And Phil Hintz gave me the slide. I don't know if he came up with this, but I love it. This is the largest ever made when it was made, and so is that one. And now there are uh, four others of this scale, all made at the mirror lab. So what the LBT is able to do with its adaptive optic system, and which uh, Daniel Apai and colleagues are also using the Spitzer Space Telescope to do, is to start doing weather on other planets. You can take measurements at different wavelengths and look at the relative brightness. These are all planets. The circles are not rings, they're just circles to draw your eye to the planets. Um, you can learn about the atmospheres of these planets. You can monitor them with time and see how their brightness changes. And if you had told me when I started graduate school here in 1984 that we would be doing this now, I would not have believed you. This is really quite remarkable. Here's one arc second. Remember, Hubble can resolve around one-tenth of an arc second. So these are not resolved, but it's because of the ability to uh, put the light from this obnoxiously bright star into as little space as possible that we're able to uh, observe these planets. So what are the projects of the future, the big ones at least? The, every 10 years, the National Academy uh, commissions a study uh, for us to identify what are the high priority science questions for the coming decade. And then it also tries to identify which major facilities should be supported in order to realize those science goals. And the science goals for this coming decade include understanding the nature of dark energy, understanding the epoch of reionization, searching for habitable planets. These are all things that, that are very hard to do, but as a community, we're trying to do it. And three of the facilities that are specifically called out in the 2010 Decadal Survey are the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, and then they called a generic large telescope, the Giant Segmented Mirror Telescope. And the U of A is involved in projects that do all three of these things. Our version of the Giant Segmented Mirror Telescope is the Giant Magellan Telescope. And I wanted to talk a little bit about these because you're going to be having speakers coming here for the next 10 years talking about progress on these projects. The one I'm going to talk about the least is, is James Webb. Um, uh, that's because Tom's going to, I'm sure, get Marsha to come and talk about uh, Webb if she hasn't already. And Marsha is our newest member of the National Academy and she is the PI for NIRCAM and this instrument was successfully delivered to Goddard Space Flight Center at the end of last year. It's an example of another kind of partnership between a federal agency, NASA, a research university, and industry, Lockheed Martin. 
So almost everything we do requires talented people in a, at many, many different places. Our role is often to be the lower cost, innovative part of the partnership. And the fringe benefit the University of Arizona and the state get is our involvement means this material gets transmitted to our students and to local industries around us. And NIRCAM is going to absolutely transform what we understand about the most distant galaxies and the debris disks and planets near nearby stars. Second big project I want to talk about is the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Um, this has a very unique design that allows it to have a very, very wide field of view. It has an 8 meter, 8.4 meter primary aperture, but as you'll see in a second, um, the primary has the tertiary, the third mirror, embedded in it. So the effective collecting area is more like a, a six and a half meter. This telescope is going to be built in Chile. This is the building, what the building looks like. Uh, this is another telescope that's already there. And it will make a digital color movie every, over 10 years, because it'll image the whole sky every four nights. Each exposure is going to be roughly um, 17 seconds. It's going to work its way through several different filter passbands. It's going to study the nature of dark matter, dark energy, cosmology, time domain, things that change, the structure of our solar system, and the structure of our galaxy. So this is the mirror. The first, uh, it should be done by April of this year. This outer ring is the primary. That's where the light hit first. It goes up to the secondary, then comes back to this tertiary with a steeper radius of curvature and then focused on the camera. I wanted to highlight two of the science cases that it's going to do that might or might not be as well known to you. The little dot on the right is a supernova. So you take one picture, take a second, sometime later, in this case three weeks, and you difference them and you can find things that change brightness. In this case, you can also get colors and get a spectrum and verify that it really is a supernova. Supernova are one of the types of variable objects, meaning they're not always there, that we use as a distance indicator, which helped former U of A undergraduate Ryan Schmidt and his colleagues discover the acceleration of the expansion of the universe that won them the Nobel Prize in 2011. So one of the main science drivers for LSST is to find objects like this and use them for cosmology and to intrinsically study the nature of stars and supernova. So you'll notice that these images are shifting a little bit. That's my imperfect ability to register them properly. But you should notice that there's also one object that's moving from frame to frame. These exposures were separated by a few minutes in time. And that object is an asteroid. And the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope will find all of the near-Earth asteroids and a huge number of Kuiper Belt objects and all the things in our solar system that are moving. It will also, over the 10 years that it's taking data, actually detect the motion of stars, the proper motion of stars. So it'll map the nearby galaxy and will have not only the locations of the stars but the distance to them. And then when you take all the data and combine it together from 10 years, 
you're going to have an image that's this deep over the entire sky. And this picture comes from an area that's only about the area of your, your little pinky uh, nail. So imagine this kind of data over the whole southern sky. It's going to be quite remarkable. And like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which I hope you've heard about before, these data will then be mined by many, many, many astronomers for, I'm sure, decades to do new science. So the telescope is going to be going um, on this mountaintop, which is this, on the same big ridge that the Gemini Observatory and SOAR are located on. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that just uh, a week and a half ago, um, this was included in the budget that Congress passed as a new start for the NSF. And they had their final design review last December. And they have a new director, Steve Kahn, who spends half of his time living in Tucson, where the telescope work is being done, and the other half of his time li living at Stanford, where at SLAC, where DOE is funding the building of the camera. And their last hurdle is to get an approval to start from the National Science Board, which should come in May, and then they'll start construction. So this should be, uh, you should be seeing data from this telescope in less than 10 years. So the last big project I want to talk about, and then I'll talk about a few uh, small projects, is the Giant Magellan Telescope. And what is special about this telescope, besides its incredible size, and that's an 18-wheeler because you wouldn't really see the person if we put them in here, is it will have adaptive optics, the same kind of adaptive optics that's been pioneered at the University of Arizona, first the MMT, then uh, LBT, and now Magellan. And you can see what, how adaptive optics has evolved over the last 10 years. This is an early image taken with Gemini. This is the same stars now taken with LBT in 2011. So when this telescope comes online with all seven mirrors in 2022, adaptive optics will have further progressed. And I'm quite confident that it will be getting the same kind of diffraction-limited images that Magellan gets now. But now, instead of a 6.5-meter mirror, it's effectively a 25-meter telescope. So this is a nice animation that, uh, that, our, that the GMT organization has put together. It doesn't show the mirror covers. It's, they've left off some of the details in order to have it be visually uh, appealing. And you're going to see something that all observatory directors hate to see in animations like this in a second. We spend a billion dollars to put this telescope on one of the world's best sites in Chile. And then the animators think that the sky looks prettier with clouds. You'll see that there are seven secondaries up at the top, too. Now what's different about the GMT compared to the MMT is the MMT was six telescopes all working together to combine light into one focus. The mirrors of the GMT are segments of a single mirror. While your eye likes to think that this mirror is symmetric because you see a circle and your brain says circles are symmetric, the surface of this mirror is actually curved in exactly the same way as 
as its counterpart on the opposite side. And together they form one giant mirror, bringing the light to a common focus. What this means in terms of the ability of the telescope to spatially resolve detail is quite remarkable. When you have this phase telescope, 25 meter diameter with adaptive optics, this is what Hubble in the near infrared looking at a star cluster would see. This is what GMT will see. It's really quite stunning. So we're fortunate that because of the history of astronomy at the University of Arizona that we've played such a major role in um, the history of the university becoming a research university, which really became uh, quite remarkable under the leadership of John Schaefer in the 70s. And he's the person that hired Peter Stripmatter, and it was under Peter that astronomy really uh, grew tremendously here. President Ann Weaver Hart is continuing the tradition of strong support. Uh, last March, she and her husband Randy uh, came down with me to a, a trip to visit the site. This is the site's already been cleared. Um, and last August, uh, she signed a letter of commitment uh, for $60 million from a variety of sources, uh, not the state legislature. Um, we're not using taxpayer dollars. It's, it's um, money from, from other sources to get us our first 6% uh, of the telescope. Our goal is to eventually raise $120 million so that we'll be a 12% partner. Our partners in this telescope include Harvard, Smithsonian, Chicago, University of Texas at Austin, Texas A&M, Australian National University, a group called Australia Limited, which is a consortium of it's a nonprofit uh, in Australia, and KAZI, which is the Korean uh, Astronomy and Space Institute. I think I got all of, all of the partners. Um, we are still looking for partners, but we've raised enough money that we believe we'll be able to decide to move ahead with construction in 2015. We just successfully held the final design review two weeks ago, and it was passed, and a cost review last week, which verified that our cost estimates are, are robust. We, we talk about starting construction next year, but we really already got a head start. Um, we have completely finished one of the mirrors, and this red ribbon is around the third of the mirrors. Eventually there will be eight. Uh, we'll have one that rotates in to the outer ring. Um, and we'll, we'll build seven. It's going to be going to um, Cerro Campanas. And this is what it will look like when it's built. Now you'll remember that the Magellan Telescope uh, had two. And there's a great story on why there are two Magellan Telescopes. The Magellan Partners originally wanted to build an 8.4 meter telescope and they couldn't raise enough money to build it. So they descoped to a six and a half meter. And then once they started building the six and a half meter, there were so many other institutions that wanted to join that they suddenly had enough money to build a second. So I'm sort of hoping that that happens too. And we'll end up with two 20 meters. Why would it be 225 meters? Why would it be good to have two? We tend to think of telescopes as the important part of making a ground-based astronomical instrument, but it's actually the system of the instrument and the telescope working together. And we come up with countless types of instruments that we want to use. And usually it's hard to use more than one at a time. Sometimes you can be clever and use more than one. You certainly can't use 12 at once. 
instruments now, the telescopes, this telescope's gonna cost roughly a billion dollars in as-spent money. That's why we need 10 partners. If you're gonna spend anywhere between 40 and 100 million on the instruments, on each instrument, you don't want the instruments sitting there not doing anything. So initially, we're only building three instruments for GMT. That means you can't do everything that you want to do. So we'll build new instruments in the years that follow, and we'll rotate out the old instruments and bring in new ones. This is more likely what it will look like. So I showed you a simulation at the beginning that was done around 10 years ago. There was a, a, a simulation of how dark matter brings uh, not only the dark, how gravity brings not only dark matter together, but also the baryons together. And one of the things that's very important to us at, in the Department of Astronomy is to have a very strong group of theorists, theoretical astrophysicists, working closely with those of us that call ourselves observers, so that you have this wonderful feedback loop of great data informing astrophysical insight, feeding back into what problems you want to study next. And I'm happy to say that our, we have a great tradition of theory. I didn't summarize um, that, but I am going to highlight some of the successes of our, our more recent hires. Brant Robertson and, um, and the theory group here put in a NSF proposal a few years ago with matching uh, funds, support from the university, and they were able to build uh, a computer that just was commissioned in December with help of UITS, the University Information Technology uh, s Service, and their new computer is number 336 in the world, 336 fastest supercomputer in the world. Now, when I first heard this, I said, oh, okay, that's nice, um, but I didn't fully appreciate it. It's called El Gato. This logo is provisional. They're waiting for approval. But I like it, and I hope they get it get, gets approved by the university. Um, this is how many dark matter particles Grant was able to run in, in the simulation I'm about to show you. Um, it's a similar physical scale, 60 megaparsecs on a side, as that, that uh, simulation I showed at the beginning. I showed you a movie that went from high redshift all the way to the present. Um, Grant just made this for, for me two weeks ago. So while the simulation took only one day, it takes longer to make movies and do the, the animation. But what he was able to do was take the simulation, the result of the simulation at zero redshift, and fly us around inside it. Now this is just the dark matter. But one of Grant's students is already working on including the baryons, and Brandt has already run multiple versions of his simulation. The simulation I showed you at the beginning took months. This one took one day. That's an analogous improvement to what we get when we build the world's largest telescope and can now resolve things 10 to 100 times better than we could before. And you can start worrying not only about where do the galaxies end up, but about the structures that are in between and how they evolve with time as well. So Brandt is going to be making a version of this for the Flandreau Planetarium because the College of Science is buying a new digital projector, which I'm sure when it gets installed, Tom will, will update everyone. And I'm really looking forward to being able to see 
simulations like this with galaxies included and be able to go back and forth between maps of the universe made by LSST and simulations made by our theorists. Now, one of the wonderful things about the U of A is we actually have two astronomy departments, and I had to learn when I rejoined the university that in order to keep this all straight, the U of A calls us space sciences. So planetary sciences and astronomy together are space sciences. And I just want you to know that I'm very well aware that the biggest, coolest project that's happening in the next two to three years is OSIRIS-REx, and I hope if you don't know about it, you'll, you'll hear about it. It's an actual mission to go get a piece of an asteroid and bring it back. And this is the first really big mission being led by uh, and, and controlled by a university. But we have other projects uh, in the pipeline. Uh, two of our faculty are part of what's an Explorer class mission. It's going to study neutron stars. It'll be deployed on the space station in a few years. I'm not going to go into really fast mode. Um, we have a stratospheric terahertz observatory. Uh, Chris Walker and his colleagues have basically created a whole other field of, of astronomy, opened up the, this, this part of wavelength space, and they, they do it with a telescope that is suspended from a balloon and then they launch it in Antarctica and it flies around for 80, 90 days getting data. And they're so high up in the atmosphere that the atmosphere is not absorbing the terahertz radiation which otherwise wouldn't reach their telescope. Um, we have a new radio telescope on Kitt Peak. Um, it started off as a prototype millimeter, submillimeter antenna um, for ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array down in Chile. The prototype was in New Mexico. This one was built by uh, the Europeans. ALMA's antennas were built by the US, the Japanese, and Europe. The Europeans had to remove this from the site or have to pay import duty on it, believe it or not. So they were gracious enough to give it to us. And after a lot of work by people here at Stewart. They moved first the pedestal and then the dish and reinstalled it up on Kitt Peak in a dome that used to house uh, an older uh, millimeter telescope. So in about a year, our students will start using uh, a state-of-the-art submillimeter telescope from Kitt Peak, joining uh, the, the SMT on Mount Graham. And together, at least the at some wavelengths, they'll be part of something called the Event Horizon Telescope, which is another project that will use telescopes around the world to try and image the shadow of a black hole in the center of our galaxy. And I mentioned we try to do what I call applied astronomy. Mike Lesser is uh, another one of the incredibly talented people that we have at Stewart. He has deployed astronomical grade CCDs everywhere you see a blue pin there at an observatory, including Antarctica. But he also does a tremendous amount of business with industry building cameras uh, that are used for testing components, like Intel's CCDs. And his students uh, are incredibly clever and involved in lots of different things other than astronomy. And I saw Glenn was in the room. Uh, Glenn is leading one of our future projects, hopefully, called Exceed, and I'm going to volunteer him to give a talk here sometime in the next year. Um, 
he's developing the technology with his collaborators that allow you to have a really dark shadow next to some ridiculously bright star so you can see a faint planet at separations or disks at separations that we can't do yet even with uh, the amazing AO systems on Magellan. Um, I wanted to close by just running through some of the people that we have that have been recognized as being talented. There's so many more that are going to be recognized in the future. But I wanted to, to highlight this because it's not just the technology which is remarkable. It's our ability to keep attracting talented people to come and do astronomy. So Olivier Guillon, who in 2012 was uh, officially recognized as a genius. Uh, we knew he was a genius. Um, Dave Arnett was the AAS uh, Henry Norris Russell lecturer for a lifetime of seminal contributions to the field of stellar explosions. Dave didn't know when he was a grad student and postdoc that figuring out how things explode uh, should be classified. So he published science papers about it where colleagues at Los Alamos weren't able to publish. But he helped start off computational astrophysics. Some of the earliest uh, attempts to model what's going on in stars uh, were Dave. And now we have uh, young faculty that are, are following in, in his footsteps. Um, Faria Lozell is one of our faculty members. She studies neutron stars and black holes. And she was recognized as the outstanding uh, young woman physicist, not just astronomer, in 2013. And she was just recently elected to the Turkish Academy of Sciences. She's from Turkey originally. Um, Don McCarthy, who I, I hope all of you know, um, he insists in his uh, performance evaluations not having his teaching count. Okay, he's got, uh, which is sort of amazing considering he's probably one of the three or four best teachers in the entire department. But he couldn't escape getting recognized as the national education prize winner by the American Astronomical Society in, in 2012. And then Tom, who I'm sure you all know, was recognized last year for his outstanding work uh, as an advisor to undergraduates. And Zabeldoff was named a Guggenheim Fellow last year. And then Adam Block has received several awards in the last year. Um, this one is from the, the uh, Hubble Award for Advanced Imaging Conference. And this is supposed to, I think this was the one, yeah, this is supposed to be, a, no, there's another one that he won this year that's a Lifetime Achievement Award. And this one annoys me because he's, he's not, um, I think he's barely two-thirds my age, so he, he can't stop yet. But I'm, I'm wrapping up with him and our Undergraduate Astronomy Club because that ties into the theme that we want to share what we're doing with the public and with you. And we know that we couldn't do what we do without the public's support. Our astronomy club's quite remarkable. This past January um, in DC at the American Astronomical Society, they organized the first meeting of astronomy clubs from universities around the whole country. And they came and shared what they're doing and how they're uh, reaching out to fellow undergraduates on their campuses all across the country to engage them in science and the importance of science in general. But they've also published research that they've done almost entirely on their own using our facilities, but with very little uh, guidance other than 
being pointed towards monthly notices because the publication costs are free. So I'll end with that except to say that, that the new strategic plan of the university is engaging, innovating, partnering, and synergy. The old message of the university was discover, educate, serve, and inspire in any way you describe it. That's what we're about at, at, in the astronomy department at the University of Arizona. And I'll be happy to answer questions. Thank you very much, Buell. And we have plenty of time for questions. And we have one up here. Sir, I'd like to ask you a question. Yeah. Uh, I know we're building these telescopes down in Chile because of the height, the dryness of the air, et cetera. But most of the astronomy that's been done in the world up until a few years ago is always in the northern hemisphere. So could you say a few words about what these astronomers went down to Chile? Did they know what they're looking at? Or they are finding something different or the same? Or, uh, sure. Um, well, one reason a lot of the, your, most of the astronomy was done in the northern hemisphere is just an accident of where the technology advanced, where there was the uh, ability for people to spend time doing astronomy. If you go back to the 1700s, 1800s, most of the people doing astronomy were either independently wealthy or they were vicars in England with a guaranteed income. Um, they had the time and the resources to do it. And actually, there has been an awful lot of astronomy done in the South. You just aren't going to hear about it here in Tucson as much because we're going to talk about what we're doing. But um, Harvard College Observatory, the South African Observatory, Australian, Maastromo, Bart Bach, who was director here at Stewart, spent five years in Australia uh, helping to build up uh, Maastromo before, before he came here. So there has been a lot. Now, why do we go to Chile? So Chile was opened up for astronomy in the early 1960s. And the reason we went there was the same reason that people came to Arizona. Uh, in fact, the first observatories down there were at a similar latitude south as, as Kitt Peak. And it was created by the same people that created Kitt Peak. And the reason they went south was they wanted to see the southern sky. They wanted to see the large Magellanic Cloud. They wanted to see the small Magellanic Cloud. Those are the closest galaxies to us. Um, so they wanted to see things you couldn't see from the north. The kind of things I do, studying the most distant galaxies, yes, you can do that um, as well from the north. But if you want to study galactic structure, you need to see the whole galaxy, so you need to be in both hemispheres. If you want to study um, the nearest galaxies, you need to be in the south. Now, why is the giant Magellan telescope going there? Um, ideally, you'd like to have a giant telescope in both hemispheres, and we probably will. One of our um, one of the other big telescope projects is called the 30-meter telescope. It's a partnership that includes China, India, Canada, Caltech, University of California. They're building their telescope in Hawaii. We're going to Chile in part because the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope is going to be in Chile. And there's going to be a wonderful synergy between the GMT, which will have the biggest collecting area when it comes online of any telescope, following up things that are found in this big wide field survey. One reason the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope went to Chile was the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, which I didn't talk about. That's a 
billion dollar project that was funded by the U.S. government along with ESO, the European Southern Observatory, and the National Observatory of Japan. It's 66 12-meter radio antennas like the one that I showed you that we just put on Kitt Peak. And it's at an altitude of 16,700 feet. And if you're going to do a radio interferometer working at submillimeter, so you want to be as high as you possibly can get, but you need a huge area in order to have um, 66 radio antennas separated by several kilometers. There are very few places in the world where you can do that. One is Antarctica, and the other is the Atacama in Chile. So while we originally went to Chile because we wanted to see the southern sky, now the reason some of the big facilities are going down there is because of ALMA. And ALMA is able to study coal gas all the way out to the distant universe. It's an amazing uh, facility, but it can't see the starlight. So GMT won't be able to see the starlight associated with, with ALMA's observations. That's a long answer to your question, but it's, it's, it, you, you know, I, I started my talk by saying we're, astronomers are ambitious and we want it all. Well, we want to see the whole sky. So there will be big facilities. The current largest telescope in the world is the Large Binocular Telescope on Mount Graham. And it's doing well, and it's getting better every year. Um, but we don't have a mountaintop that's, um, that's 16,000 feet. So we are partners. We're helping to build. Uh, the, the University of Tokyo wants to build a 6.5 meter telescope at 18,000 feet up above Alma. There's a mountaintop above Alma. And we're making the mirror for them. That'll be in Chile. Um, can you explain a little bit about the work that the uh, Stuart Observatory is doing in the terahertz uh, range and what its objectives are and uh, what it hopes to learn? Sure. So um, what Chris, I'm, I'm most familiar with some of what Chris is doing. I'm not familiar with all of the science they're doing. They can look at transitions of molecules that are at higher energy levels than the ones we study at millimeters. So at, from Kitt Peak, we study like carbon monoxide in the J equals one, one ground state, one level down, one to zero. Um, with the terahertz, they can do four to three, five to four, they can go up to higher transitions. They can also um, make more sensitive observations of molecules that don't emit at the longer wavelengths, but it emit it at the, at the shorter wavelengths. So the combination allows you to do more astrochemistry, more understanding of the chemical pathways that the molecules and, uh, go through in the, in the molecular clouds. But he'll be studying star-forming regions and w regions where, where stars form. Any other questions? I want to thank all of you for coming tonight. And if you have any questions, come up afterwards. Or um, I, I actually read email, too, so you can send me an email. And I'd also like to remind you our next talk is two weeks from tonight, that will be February the 10th, one of our postdocs, Dr. Cameron Hummels, he's going to give a talk about our nearest neighbor. It's called Moon Miscellany, an introduction to our nearest neighbor. He's just going to give you all sorts of fun facts about the moon and what we actually know about it. Uh, I also want to remind you that two weeks after that, we won't be having a Monday talk. That'll be the Mark Aronson Memorial Lecture. That's going to be on a Friday night, the 28th. So, 
telescope is open for public viewing, if you so desire. I will stamp any student assignments down here. Let's thank Professor Januzzi one more time.